I'm really interested in trying to build, find out what we have in common Mm -hmm. and also to try and understand what the material differences are in terms of things like our understanding of time, personal responsibility, the individual versus the collective, these kind of things. So I'd like to really get into an understanding so that people at least have a framework because at the moment, bluntly, they're the yellow peril as far as most Americans are concerned. And most Brits, they're not, it's not much different. Especially since, I mean, maybe 2018, it might have looked a little bit different, but... My generation still have a very vivid uh, memory of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. I mean, that, that's indelibly you know, stuck in my head. I can see it now. And I've got a really bad visual imagination. So that was a defining moment for many people. And trying to understand how it could have got to that point is one thing. But understanding that we don't really have a choice. We have to accept that China is on the rise. There's nothing we can do about that. So we can either live with it and make the best of it, or we can try and fight it, which would be idiotic and expensive and bound to lose. Yep. And unless we're willing to go to war, that's the only way America is going to win this battle of empires is if they go to war. Because economically, they're in just the wrong place. And I think they're also just not, they're also too divided to be able to have a chance because everything is just too polarised. Not a chance. Even United, they'd struggle. But... I'm not sure that they're willing to accept that yet. So I'd like what I'd like to do is you know, give them a stepping stone so they can save a little bit of face and see that there is That's a better very part. Chinese for them. concept. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm listening. I'm learning because know your enemy, but better still, make them your friend. Yeah. I mean, you look at the marvelous job the Germans have managed to do around the world. I mean, they're not the most popular, but people don't fear them. No, and also to be very fair. Germany has done a lot of kind of, it sounds a bit woo when you formulate it in that way, but Germany has done a lot of work on themselves yeah. to think about what happened, how did we get to the situation that we got to in the 30s yeah. and what can we do to make sure that doesn't happen? That is something that I see quite a lot of simply because being based in Austria, which obviously I'm sitting like 80 kilometers away from where Hitler was born. Right. And it's a kind of, and Austria obviously has this very far right past, which isn't very well hidden and is still quite present in politics. And Austria hasn't done that self-work. Austria has portrayed themselves, we were a victim, the Germans marched in in 38, and, Mm. you know, we've been a victim ever since, which isn't the case, you know. Yeah. They were complicit. Um, Definitely complicit. On the other hand, how much stuff has the Brits got, you know, and the Brits are awful about admitting that, the colonial past that of how much stuff with the Mau Mau and how much stuff in well, India. The, um, the, the problem with the Irish is they never forget. And the, the problem with the English is they never remember. Yep. Yep, exactly. All those kind of things. I mean, you know, if you've been <coughs> on the winning side of history for a lot of the time, then it's quite convenient, isn't it? Yeah. You haven't been forced to face up to um, the negative side of things that you might have done. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, again, 
I think we let's not waste this because this is really very good. Um, so, um, Catherine, w- would you mind doing a quick introduction to who you are? <laughs> to, to hell with the edit. <laughs> okay, so I am an international sales and marketing consultant. So you could basically say I'm an export consultant. I started out as a linguist, which gave me a lot of background in culture and looking at how different cultures and different political systems have led to where things are. It seemed obvious because I didn't want to teach that and I didn't want to do translation and interpreting that international trade was going to be a good option. So I did some further qualifications in that and I have spent basically my whole career in export. First of all, in the UK, in the automotive industry, and then the last uh, 23 years back in Austria, in rubber stamps, and then in food and beverages. And for the last three years, I've been self-employed, helping small and medium-sized companies in the consumer goods space to expand into to expand eastwards, I would say. So Eastern Europe, the Near East, the Levant kind of region, and Asia, especially China. So that would be me in a nutshell. Fantastic. Okay, well, that expands the conversation very nicely. So buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start with the furthest of those, China, because they are the rising empire economically, all the uh, financial trends look like they're in China's favor. And in the last 60 years, they've managed to elevate something like 96% of their population, or 98% of their population out of poverty, which is a a phenomenal economic achievement that cannot be decried. But we look at them in the West as a very confusing unknown, because There's communism. We have Tiananmen Square, if you're old enough to remember that. There's a a general uh, sense that um, we don't really understand China or the Chinese or how they operate. So I'd like to spend a good deal of today's conversation really delving into that, if I may. As a Westerner, first of all, what would you recommend I look for just to get a sense of China, the Chinese and Chinese culture? I think it's always a little bit difficult to get a true handle on Chinese culture because on the one hand, the Chinese culture in the sense of greater China has been the almost the dominating force in the world for several thousand years. You could almost say up until the last 150 years, more or less. So If you look back, then there's all of this kind of history. Everybody's heard of Ming vases. Everybody's heard of Confucius. I think everybody knows about the Great Wall. And everybody's heard of Genghis Khan. And those are probably the things that people think about with China. That and Marco Polo, of course. (laughs) Can't forget Marco Polo. And those are probably the, the biggest things. But on the other hand, like you already mentioned, the things that people think about when you when you actually talk about modern China, you're thinking about Mao, you're thinking about the Cultural Revolution, and you're thinking about you have all of these kind of very negative pictures in your mind social in many ways. Scoring. Yeah, and you know, social scoring and the the repression and so on. And where, so from as from a Western perspective, 
there is a natural nervousness because this definitely feels alien. And we, we struggle to really get to grips with the idea that this is a dominating force in the world. And they are now. Because if you look at uh, Chinese uh, soft power, they've managed to essentially own the rights to infrastructure and minerals in South America, Central America, Africa, and Asia, and uh, large chunks of Australia. And they own most of British luxury property. So all in all, they are the dominant economic force on the planet. Certainly if they're not number one, they're clipping at America's heels. And it's only a matter of uh, moments before the, uh, that flips and China becomes the dominant economy. So how do, how do we have, what, what do we have to do to try and at least get a handle on who we're dealing with? What do we have to read, listen to, understand? I think you have to start looking on the one hand a little bit at the history that you can say you need to understand a little bit of Chinese history to understand a little bit about Confucianism and where China has come from with that, to understand the kind of historical collective nature of, of Chinese culture, where, let's face it, Chinese culture was seen as being extremely civilized and they invented paper, gunpowder, all kinds of things that actually in the West have powered us to the last couple of hundred years of, of economic dominance, you could say. Then there came this period where a lot of those things were repressed. So all of those things about culture and academia and all of those centuries of academics be promoted into the government and this culture of having those who were academically gifted being the ones who were counted as the leaders, was kind of suppressed for a long time and it was went back to a kind of brutal force. And now you see that, especially amongst slightly older generations, that this interest in history and culture is coming up again. And the younger generations, the interest in their own sense of self and their own, if I say nationalism, that word is also tainted a little bit in the West, but their own sense of pride in being Chinese is starting to rise again, which 10, 15 years ago was not so strong. Interesting. Okay. So one thing that really interests me is the different way uh, the Chinese and many Oriental cultures uh, appear to view time compared with the way we do. Help me understand that, because that is seems to be a really important disparity, especially when, for example, you're trying to negotiate. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I think in the West, when we talk about time, you see time as being something linear. You go from, you come from the past into the present and you go forward into the future. And in China, time is seen as being a more circular concept or perhaps a more spiral concept. So you do move forward, but you move forward in the context of your past and you have to always be aware of the future, but you, you tend to always come back to a certain baseline, which when you're negotiating with Chinese partners can be really annoying. Explain a bit more and give me some context. <laughs> okay, so to give you an example of that, 
you you maybe spend say three days negotiating a really big contract. You want to have an exclusive partner in China. You spend three days sitting in a small meeting room, negotiating it with him, explaining everything from your side. He explains everything from his side. When things get too heated, you go out, you have something to eat, you come back again. If things get heated again, you go out, you do some karaoke, you come back again, yeah? Because the Chinese view a contract as being the beginning of a relationship, whereas in the West, we view a contract as being a kind of, it's the first big milestone in the relationships. It's the first big thing that you kind of close off, whereas for the Chinese, that's a basis for further discussion. So you go home from those three days thinking, okay, we have signed the contract. Then you come back a couple of months later thinking, okay, my contract is signed, let's move forward. And it doesn't work like that because then what happens is that your Chinese partner comes back to you and they say, well, you know what you spoke about, about marketing costs and we should pay for this and you should pay for that. We, we'd just like to look at that again. And you begin again to discuss on the same topics that you've agreed in your payment terms or you've agreed in your shipping terms. And it's very easy as a Westerner to be offended by that and to feel like they're coming back and trying to renege on the contract that you've agreed with them and that they've signed. Whereas for them, the contract is a kind of, it's a sign of goodwill. It's a sign that they want to move forward and to work with you. But it's not the sign of this is cast in stone for the next five years as to exactly how we're going to work together. It is a basis of discussion. Okay, so again, um, you know, to, to, uh, drawing a terrible, no doubt, uh, culturally appropriated uh, parallel, but uh, Bruce Lee always talked about the difference between rock and water. And the water always wins yeah. because it's patient, it, it just erodes and you know, it just has to wait for a freezing cold night and it just gets in and crack. And the, the, the problem is that I think we spend too much time being very rigid um, yes. and being very contractual. And one of the most important lessons I've learned from the most interesting salesperson you will ever meet, a guy called Zach Selch. Now, he's set up well over a thousand partnerships. Yeah. I know um, Zach. Over, you know Zach. thousand partnerships in over 135 countries. And travel definitely does broaden the mind. And what, one thing that Zach does, and he has a 95% success rate, when he sets up a partnership, whether it's in China or Nigeria, or Uruguay, it doesn't make any difference. 95% of his partners are profitable from the start and they're yes. successful and they stay in his network. They never leave. The only way out of there is in a box. And the reason is he spends time really understanding them, um, understanding yes. their time frame, their and um, the way they do business, uh, local culture, down to you know the food their grandmother made. Yeah. And I think we lack that. Because we're yeah. so contractual. And it, what's interesting, there, there was a reason to the ramble. What he does is he gets them lined up with 10 opportunities before the lawyers have a chance to ruin it. So they're already doing business. And so they've already got past that stage where they, have, you know, they look like they're reneging on the contract. You're working together. You're putting money in their pocket. They're happy. Yeah. 
Exactly. And I mean, especially in Asia, in all of the Asian cultures, not only in Asia, but especially in Asia, you have to invest the time up front into building the relationship. This is one of those cultural points that if you don't spend the time up front, then you don't need to start talking about how you're going to actually manage the sales. Yes, you can build the relationship by discussing with them about how their market works and how the market ticks and what makes a successful deal and what will be a deal breaker for their clients. But you have to invest that time. You can't just come in and expect that you can get immediately down to business in the same way that you would do if you were talking to an American or to a German, where by the time you've asked them, how was your journey here? Would you like tea or coffee? (laughs) Hope you're feeling okay today kind of thing. That is the end of small talk. We'll tick off that and we'll go straight forward into talking about the business. And that is one of the things that for Europeans and also for Americans is really difficult when they go to China because they come in and the Chinese partner will say to them, let's have tea. And you will sit for maybe two hours at the beginning of a business meeting and you can see people kind of, you know, they're on like tender hooks because they want to move forward. But if you don't build the relationship, then you have, you won't move forward in your discussions. Practically, how much time would you realistically need to factor in for all of the social etiquette and the, you know, the nice to knows and the get, you know, the get together stuff so that you build that into your timetable and you bet you've got you ready so you're patient because turning up, you know, waiting to leave the, the three o'clock flight, probably not the best thing. No, all you're doing in that case is you're just playing into the hands of your Chinese partner especially if they know that you have maybe one agenda point that you need to get through in that meeting. If they know that you're leaving for a flight at three, then they're not going to let you bring that point onto the table until 2.45 or maybe 2.50. And at that point in time, they know that you are under pressure because you perhaps need to go back home with the result, tell your boss or to tell your owners or investors or whoever. So it puts the onus on you to agree because you're under pressure and to find a quick solution, which is not necessarily the best way to go about these things. So So how much should you factor in realistically? First first time you've met a partner, do you need to give a week, two weeks, a month? I would say if you have the possibility to meet in person with your partners, then certainly the first meeting should be a couple of days so that you've got time to, if you're looking at doing ongoing exclusive business with that partner or at least semi-exclusive business with that partner you need to factor in a couple of days and then come find out how they are actually working and then come back at a later point to build on that and, and the more time the reasonable time frame between that first and second meeting i would say it depends on the it depends on the partner if you're dealing with a partner who is very cosmopolitan and who sits in Shanghai, you might not need to spend two days up front. You might be okay with spending basically a half a day discussing niceties around the meeting and how the market works, that kind of thing. If you're talking to somebody, especially a lot of people are doing their sourcing in China, and that might not be in one of these coastal cosmopolitan places. If you're somewhere in the pamper, then you're probably going to need to invest more time and energy up front 
into building relationships if they have a more traditional approach to this. And it's probably going to cost you a couple of years worth of your liver values as well to get through that. <laughs> is, it, is that just the two weeks going to cost you two, worth, two years worth of liver? <laughs> I would say possibly even two days. Um, but it depends. I mean, that kind of very heavy drinking culture is present in some industries still. You know, if you're in a more industrial setting or you're in a more rural setting, then that is still much more prevalent than if you are meeting maybe with a marketing agency in Shanghai, then chances are that they will come in and get straight down to business. But I mean, China is so big. That is one thing that people really shouldn't underestimate. China is not just like one country. It's like a continent. And you wouldn't expect a Brit to work in the same way as a Greek. There is a fantastic course by the great courses on Audible called From Yao to Mao. And it's 4,000 years of Chinese history. And when you consider how advanced China was 3,000 years ago, it's amazing. They managed to run an empire the size that they did with hundreds of millions of people, with you know, horses. <laughs> and it's very, very impressive. That then brings me to another question in terms of the collective mind of uh, China. I'm really curious about this. There seems to be much more of a sense that you work for the good of the community. And you look at the social score. That's all about being a good Chinese Communist Party member, I guess. But the challenge that I think we have is we don't really get the collective mindset um, in the same way that the Chinese do. And I'd be really curious to understand where that comes from and how that manifests in the way they do business, the way they negotiate. I think it starts out in the family simply because you have these Confucian values, which is Confucianism leads to a very kind of patriarchal society where you have a benevolent patriarch and there's very much a focus on morals, justice, respect, harmony, and that everybody works together for the good of the family. So Chinese children are brought up in that idea that they should, when they're older, that they should take good care of their parents, maybe take good care of their grandparents. And whilst they're moving away from that a little bit now and becoming more individualistic, if you look at Gen Z, then there is still that feeling that family bonds are very strong and that is also carried forward into let's say the government and the legal systems or into companies so there's also that feeling that there's a boss at the top and everybody works together for the common good if you look at it in very general terms that's extremely generalized but they have also due to the fact there're just so many of them yeah so through their school systems everything is trimmed on this idea of doing things collectively and of course the communist party uses that confucian history for their own good let's say mm-hmm. because they want to present the picture that they as the government have the needs of the people at their heart and that that is what motivates them for this Chinese form of communism, which is perhaps it's not quite the kind of Leninist Marxists 
approach that the Soviet Union had in the past. It's much more, has a more nationalistic flavor to it. And so within companies, there has been in the past very much this feeling that the big boss is the one who takes the final decision. And if you go to a meeting with Chinese, there used to be this kind of standing standing joke that you would turn up on your own and there would be a committee of like 10 people to meet you because they would bring all of the people in and nobody would want to actually put their neck on the line and, and express to an extreme an opinion. Everybody would listen to you and nod very, but actually meetings in China are not somewhere where decisions are made. Decisions are made outside of meetings in China. And that is something that you need to think about if you're going into, okay, it's difficult to go into China right now, but if you're going into a meeting with a bunch of Chinese, it's the discussions in advance of the meeting where usually the decisions are actually made and the meeting is for improving your relationships, for improving your guangxi, and it is for kind of rubber stamping the decisions that you made in advance after you agreed with everybody and you have to do a lot of talking with all the different parties and stakeholders involved. Oh, how interesting. Right. Okay. So the decision's already made up front, which again fits very neatly with the way I certainly like to sell, which is that you agree at the beginning what you want to happen at the end. That's a very natural flow. I didn't realize that there was a confusion element to the way I sell. Okay. Um, So this is really interesting because, uh, again, your concept of time is very interesting describing it as a spiral, because one of the uh, ways that I view the world is looking at it through this uh, concept of spiral dynamics, which uh, allows you to effectively evolve or progress to a different level of capability and awareness, which allows you to use all the capabilities below, but not the ones above, because you haven't been exposed to them. And it's in the form of a spiral. So what's happening in effect is you learn how to grow into those uh, value systems, but they have both good and bad. And there there is a a historical edge to it because you have to go back and relearn and reflect. So I'm, I'm getting a sense now of how they think and how they conceive of time. So when you're talking about that patriarchy or that belief that the big boss ultimately makes the decision. In that case, how does one get access to the big boss? Because if you go to Nigeria, you'd probably do it through the church, you know, if you want any real influence. So what, what's the equivalent route in China? It depends a little bit on your industry. In many industries, you probably would be wanting to look at getting to know some party officials. Mm-hmm. And getting to know some officials on a regional level and provincial levels and so on. I would say that if you're looking at working with private companies, though, often you go through a kind of, how should I say, like a kind of screening process that you would have a meeting with some middle managers. And if they deem that you're reasonable enough to be important for the big boss and his time, that he will then come into the meeting and spend time in the meeting. Of course, it it always it's always that power question. If you're coming from a from a company that the Chinese side really wants to work with and they've approached you, 
then chances are that the big boss is going to be in the meeting from the very beginning. If you're trying to sell something to them and they're still not convinced that they actually want to work with you, then you're going to have to work for that to get the boss involved. At the boss level, do they network amongst themselves or do they they tend to operate them very independent of one another? I would say that in China, if you don't have a network, then you're lost. But I'm talking at the boss level. Do they network with each other, boss to boss? Right, okay. So if you find your way into one, that can be a conduit into many. Yes. And if you have, let's say, a business relationship with a Chinese boss who you have a very strong relationship with, then you know that you can go to him and you can say, hey, I'm looking for a partner for this business or I'm looking for somebody who can help me with that. And they will do whatever they can to put levers in motion to get you that connection, if they have the connection, obviously. And if not, they may introduce you to somebody who has. Okay. Okay. So again, take it slow. Make sure that you're paying attention to what they are trying to accomplish and find a way to fit their agenda. Definitely. And present no threat to their relationships and make them look good by passing you up or sideways to other people who can help you and factor in significantly more time, probably three, four times as as long as you thought it would take to get the ball rolling. And once the ball is rolling, understand that when they come back to renegotiate, that's just the way things are. It's not them trying to pull a fast one. Definitely. And once the ball starts to roll, you have to also then appreciate that they may want to move forward a lot faster than you are used to doing. Because China, when they've made a decision to do something, and that doesn't matter whether it's the government or it's on the level of a private company, then they throw resource at it until they've got a solution and they're moving forward. And they tend to be, compared to Europeans, they tend to be much more focused on getting a minimum viable solution of any kind and then iterating very fast. Okay. So they're okay with experimenting and failing as long as you fail fast. Right. Okay. So it's not about innovation. It's about exnovation. So it's building on what you've already got. I would say that has been traditionally the Chinese strength. Taking something, and there you see also in all this idea about copycat type things, taking something that they can see, trying it out. And let's face it, they have a huge population, so they can gather huge data sets on whatever it is very fast, much faster than you could gather. If you're in Montenegro, you've got no chance of doing of gathering data at that kind of speed because you've only got a few a small population to deal with. But in China, you can roll things out yeah. on a small level to a few million, to a few million people if you just roll out in one city, try it, and then adapt. But I think that what people underestimate is that that's been the approach up until now of taking existing ideas and improving on them. And they've got the reputation of being copycats and of stealing IP 
Whereas in Chinese culture, that's also been like a traditional, you know, learn from the master and then develop your own technique. And yeah. I think that in the next, certainly the next 20 years, we're going to start seeing innovation coming out of China because there are just so many good talents coming up in all kinds of areas who have that kind of self-confidence in themselves and their own abilities, who've often been educated internationally and who have learned that they don't have to follow a master, that they can also think a little bit more out of the box. And I think that this is going to, the Asian century is going to bring a lot of innovation coming from China. They're not there yet, but I think that this is coming up. Again, if you read stuff like Ray Dalio's Making Sense of the Changing World Order, he talks about a number of uh, long, short and medium term trends, all working towards America being on the decline and China on the rise. And it, it certainly looks that way. Geopolitically, the balance is shifting over to Asia. I mean, what are we really going to do if they invade Taiwan? It's very unlikely that that's going to happen, I suspect, because the Chinese don't really want a war. That's expensive. And they're going to win if they just play patient. And they do patient very well. So I suspect they're just going to win over time. They can make the Americans jumpy because of the semiconductor industry in Taiwan, which obviously is vital for the rest of the world, especially the American economy. And that can keep us in check whilst they do whatever they like to exploit the Russians, because I suspect now what's going on is a lot of backdoor dealing because the Russians need to, they need capital. And let's face it, the Chinese have more dollars than anyone else does, including the Americans. So that's the reality of what I think is going on. So we have to play in that environment um, and we have to be realistic. We can try and grumble and uh, fight against it, but all we're going to do is beat our head against the wall and then complain we have a headache. Yeah, um, definitely. So, what, what's your advice to Western companies? Because let's face it, the governments aren't going to listen, but business owners and business leaders, what advice would you give to try and at least understand and make the best of this Asian, Asian century that's coming? I would say that business leaders really need to be open for the idea that Asian power, and it won't just be China, because if you look at what are the fastest growing economies if you look at the top 10 fastest growing economies in the next 10 to 15 years, I think five of them are in Asia. Vietnam tops the list in terms of percentages. They're exposed to grow at about 30 to 50% like on a recurring basis. The Philippines is right up there. So you've got this explosion of Asian power. And I think China is also doing a very good job of trying to consolidate their position within Asia, which historically has been, let's say, rocky, their relationships with their neighbours. But I think they're certainly trying to improve that now. And so Western companies need to be open for the idea. They don't necessarily, I'm not saying everybody has to go into the Chinese market, but you have to understand that the Chinese are pursuing their own legitimate selfish ends in the same way that the UK follows their own ends or that Germany follows their own ends. And you have to be open for that. And if you don't learn about how they work and how China is working, then I think that there will be a problem. And I think that people have to understand China has such huge levels of resources 
that they can throw resource at problems and solve a lot of problems, be they medical or be they in the fields of AI, if they want to, they can solve them in many cases a lot quicker than we could do in the West, simply because, like I mentioned before, we don't have these huge data sets. If you look at, it's not the newest book out, but AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. He's a Taiwanese-American who now lives in China. He was head of Google China for a long time. And he has a book out explaining how China is coming up in this AI field and this swap from evolution to innovation. And he has also another book out, which is called um, AI 2041, which is not such a nonfiction. It's a mix of nonfiction written together with a science fiction author. And he's extremely interesting forecast of how things might develop with AI and in the technical field, some of which are kind of horror scenarios and some of which are positive views, but it shows a fairly balanced view of things. So I think that there are some books out there. One other would be Can We Trust the Chinese, which is a new book out by Pascal Coppens. That's also a very interesting thought process. So, yeah. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, I've downloaded 2041, and I'll get the others once I've listened back. So this is really, really fascinating. Okay, so let me think about this then. We've got an exploded population, and it's continuing to grow despite the single-child policy. And I'm really interested in this, because how has that changed the nature of Chinese culture? Because a nation of single children, maybe I'm being unfair to singletons and firstborns, but I'm really curious, that must create a certain sense of entitlement. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, especially this kind of post-80s generation, who were the ones who were the first kind of full generation who grew up as only children. In many ways, they're what are called the little emperors because you've got six adults, you've got two sets of grandchildren, uh, grandparents and the parents all funneling all of their resources in terms of money, time and affection into one child. And then when those two children marry, then of course, those the whole expectations of the family You've got two single children who marry each other and the whole expectations of two families are focused on those two. So it's put tremendous social pressure on them to have that one child and to take care of that one child because that is also, let's say, your old age security because the pension system in China is not that well developed up until now. Realistically speaking, the single child policy was effectively more or less abandoned quite a while ago, but legally speaking, it wasn't written off until fairly recently. I mean, first of all, it was stated that you could, as long as both parents were single children, you could have a second child. And there was a short spike, there was a brief spike in the in the birth rate at that time, but that was also partially driven by the Chinese um, horoscope if it was the right year. 
But now that they've also said that you can have a third child, at the moment, China is to some extent in a panic because the birth rate is declining at such an alarming rate and the population is aging. So you have a situation where many Chinese retire, ladies retire at around 55. Wow. And so you have this huge kind of silver surfer generation who are coming up. They're becoming a much, they've got money because the last years have been profitable years. They've been quite prosperous years in China. So they are the first, for the first time, they're a generation who are coming up and they have enough money to spend on luxuries or on their grandkids and so on. So things are changing, but it's really difficult to persuade young parents to have a second child because they don't see the benefit themselves not having had siblings. It's just expensive, horribly expensive, horribly, horribly expensive. Right. So is there any form of financial penalty if you do have a second child? No, not anymore. Right. But it's just expensive bringing up a kid. Infant formula in China costs three to four times what it costs in Europe. Explain. Simply because you have a really long supply chain and there's so much competition in the Chinese market that the marketing costs make up a huge percentage of the cost. Ah, And so you have a lot of people in the supply chain. You have a lot of sub-distribution. Everybody needs to earn a living. And a lot of people in China, a lot of companies, they kind of in this new rich situation that they want to get money fast. Also because they've grown up in a situation of slight of uncertainty. And so they figure any money they can earn today, what you have, you have, you know. The government might try and take their companies away tomorrow. So it's better to earn as much money as you can today. That's starting to calm down a little bit, but that was the situation at least 10, 15 years ago that people were looking to, it was like a land grab kind of situation. Understood. Okay. So typically what happens after that is some order settles in and you start creating structure. So are you starting to see more uh, Chinese companies Uh, really building good infrastructure, systems, processes? I would say it's starting to come in. The processes, there are companies who have really good structures and, and processes, and there are some business models that are starting to come up, which are kind of, I would say, there are some interesting business models that are coming up at the moment within China or which already exist within China, And which I think you'll see more of in the coming years. So you've got these kind of paternalistic Confucian business models that some of the more traditional companies like Huawei, for example, is quite quite leadership driven. Then you've also got companies which are very much more of this kind of go with the natural flow. They're quite change driven. In many ways, you've got these companies like Alibaba, or you've also got companies, do you know, Hire? They do white goods and technology. And they're a little bit, they're structured in, I don't know how many different departments, and each department is kind of an individual business unit. So they develop this entrepreneurial kind of feel about it, which is, it's not quite, it's not quite a Western 
situation, they're very much networked between one another for the departments. And they know that they have these interdependencies between departments, but it's definitely quite an agile system. And they're not dependent on somebody at the top making the final decision because they have a certain amount of autonomy within their departments. And I think that this is kind of change, you know, you see that this is this is changing. There are also companies coming up who are working on much more, who are much more globally influenced or much more Western influenced, like ByteDance, who own TikTok, that kind of thing. Right. It is those kind of companies have much flatter hierarchies than would be the tradition. And they have this much more inclusive kind of culture with coaching and so on and they're trying so they tend to have also they tend to be the younger companies and they also have quite young employees like i mentioned earlier chinese tend to go to retire earlier yeah. than than europeans at the moment at the moment so companies tend to be much younger also because of the political you know it's not that long since they opened up to private Companies. So what proportion of an only child's income would be likely spent on caring for their six parents and grandparents? Hard to say. I really don't know. I don't know. Right. That would Obviously, really... it's something that changes, isn't it, as time goes by? Because well, the parents are caring for the grandparents, or they should yeah. be. Okay. Because I'm thinking over in the UK, we have an aging population and the pension pot was pillaged many times. Gordon Brown sold off all the gold. And so we're facing a pension crisis because the Gen Xers are starting to retire now. Boomers are pretty much at retirement age or beyond. And whilst they have money, they're pulling on that pension pot. And that money isn't going to last forever. It depends on having younger people feeding into it. So at some point, that's going to be depleted. Now, I suspect a similar kind of pressure will occur in China, where there's that pinch point where they can't afford to keep looking after them. And then uh, yeah, what happens in terms of social disruption? So that's really interesting. No idea where that would head. Especially when you consider that one of the main considerations of the Chinese government is social harmony and keeping the pop because that is one of the main control measures that you have that you have to keep the people you have to feed the beast because otherwise otherwise you have that situation of revolution don't you I mean in an extreme form you have some kind of some kind of uprising so I mean young parents are really kind of in the pinch if they've got elderly parents who have health issues and so they're struggling to take care of them both financially and from a time perspective they have young kids and education is expensive baby food is expensive everything to do with bringing so, up kids is expensive so education isn't provided by the state it is but there's huge competition so if you want your child to go to a better kindergarten right. or then you can expect that it will be, firstly, it will be expensive. And secondly, you will be interviewed before your child is allowed into that kindergarten. Okay, right. So again, there's a lot of pressure to conform and to comply. So again, one of the things that I really want to explore before we finish is 
if we look at the Chinese government, they need to keep to feed the beast. So they have to feed that economy. It's growing at 13%. Uh, I saw our inflation uh, rate today went up to 9%. And our economies you know, are growing at a fraction of 13%. So what we're seeing is this enormous, still enormous level of growth, and they have to keep feeding it. Mm. Well, th- no? I'm not so sure. I think the level of growth is closer to like 6% this year, probably. And if you look at April, then it will be, April will be disaster. But the Chinese economy for the last few years has needed to grow at 6 or 7% in order to, act, to really grow and not just to be growing at the same rate as inflation. Right. Okay. So that's a slowing down then. Presumably the that's... The rate of growth um, has massively slowed down. And I think that the official figures are something probably... 6.6%, something like that is the forecast for this is the forecast for this year. Ah, right. Okay. Well, and the, the figures that came out on the BBC a couple of weeks ago were 13. So okay. uh, clearly uh, we're we're getting fed different stuff. But I I'll rely more on yours. I, I tend to prefer to be more conservative. So then if they're growing at that level, that means that they need our markets to be strong yes. because that's how they uh, they grow. And they need their economy to be strong so that they contain and feed the beast. How can we create bridges? Where is the common ground? What's the stuff that the Chinese desperately want that we can give them that puts us in a position where they see us as an ally instead of uh, somebody to be exploited? Consumer goods in lots of cases, although the importance of that is declining. So Western branded goods have been very typically one of the things that that China likes to have, be that in terms of automotive, be that in terms of fashion, albeit in terms of food and beverages also, that still remains a big field. I think the Chinese are still, they still have a lot of respect also for Europe especially, and they like the fact that Europeans have this kind of sense of history and heritage because that is something that is inherently valuable to Chinese, and they, they find that worthy of respect. They quite like the US kind of worship of, of money, because a lot of them have suffered in the past. You know, if you've experienced poverty, then you don't want to be, you don't want to be going hungry ever again, for sure. But I think that they're starting to get to a stage of being more comfortable and less hungry for just more money. And I think that Gen Z is certainly starting to move away from these kind of overworking and just worshipping mammon kind of approach that they've had. As far as I know, there have been discussions this last week between European leaders and President Xi, and he for sure is interested in making sure that business between Europe and China continues. I mean, he needs a market. He needs a market for his goods. He needs the Europeans and the Americans. The Australians would be nice, but there's not that many of them. If we're realistic, we could manage without Australia kind of thing. He needs a market for his goods because Chinese companies are producing goods. They can produce extremely high quality goods if they want to. You only have to look at an iPhone or at a Ming mm-hmm. vase to know that China is very good at those kind of things if they mm-hmm. want to. And I think that the West 
has high quality, consistent quality to offer. Chinese love Western education. It's also one thing which is something... Yeah, the LSE, 30% of their students were Chinese pre-pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And those are things that they're willing to pay for. Okay, but that to me suggests that they're not really interested in our intellectual workers. And certainly a large chunk of our, certainly my audience, sell stuff that's intangible. And I'm curious how those companies can thrive um, without falling foul of piracy and all the other things that we're afraid of. I think the Chinese are always interested to learn from outside. But up until now, it's been quite the possibilities for kind of coaching or training if you're not a China specialist. And so you can't talk about the differences in culture or you don't have really in-depth knowledge about how the Chinese think have been quite limited up until now. Okay, interesting. So one of the other areas where I see the West being very vulnerable commercially is our fixation on quarterly reporting cycles because you know, a lot of Chinese companies are operating on 100-year plans and you know, cycling back to the whole concept of different perception of time. So do you see the quarterly reporting cycle being a competitive disadvantage to the West? It depends how it's used. If you see it as an information vehicle that you can use for making short-term quick adjustments, then I would say that this is something that fits very well into the Chinese psyche. If you're saying that you're using it to make knee-jerk, huge strategic changes of direction, then I would say that this is probably going to clash slightly. Often it's driven by the valuation and worrying about the numbers as opposed to building and securing the fundamentals of the business. And if you're using it in that way and just reacting to, oh, we've had a bad month that's pulled down the quarterly results, then it's going to cause problems probably in China. Because you also have to think that in lots of companies in China, if you're selling across China, you might sell to an importer who then has two or three layers of sub-distribution before the goods actually reach retail and then actually reach the end consumer if you're actually selling physical products. So there's a hugely long sales cycle in terms of, I do a deal with you and the goods actually are sold to somebody at the other end and really, really finally sold. Okay. So getting to the end user. Okay. But what I'm interested in here is the Chinese stock market seems to have taken off. So I'm really curious how many Chinese companies are driven by their reporting cycles to their stock market. And is that changing the way they do business? Mm, I would say that up until now, one of the perhaps one of the problems of the Chinese stock market has been that in general terms, it's only gone up. I mean, it has it's had short-term corrections, like when the fines were issued on Alibaba last year and so on, the whole tech market moved down. Then 
edutech crashed when when the when the Chinese introduced new regulations about not being able to make excessive profits from education online and those kind of things. But I think that the Chinese stock market itself has been, let's say it's maybe been slightly overvalued and a lot of Chinese Gen Xers effectively invested in the stock market because they saw it as something that could only go up and they didn't read that small print that says the value of your investment can go down as well as up. And right. when things happened in 2015, as they did when the Chinese stock market corrected itself a bit. But I don't think that Chinese companies are quite so driven on these quarterly results. They use it to change their tactics, but they're not going to, unless they see a trend over a longer time, they're usually not making those kind of, oh my word, we've had one bad month, it's an absolute disaster kind of decisions. Okay. so. Then that's interesting. So what kind of media do Western companies need to learn to become familiar with and master if they're going to thrive within the the Chinese market? In the sense of where they can inform themselves or where where they can can market market their products. But also where where their audience congregates. Are there trade associations, are there regional bodies, are there professional uh, magazines, those kinds of things? I would say that on LinkedIn, there are quite, there's quite a large circle of, of China watchers who do a lot of education on Chinese topics, where China is one of those markets where there is a huge amount of information in English available of analysis of different industries and so on. Far more than if you wanted to find something out about, for example, Thailand or the Philippines or Vietnam, simply because the market is so important. There are bodies within China. So there's the European SME Chamber of Commerce. There are different chambers of commerce and different interest groups within China. Everything at the moment is a little bit driven through the whole pandemic situation. So things are in a little bit of a strange limbo situation with because of people not being able to go in and out effectively, which makes it harder to do business. Okay. But, and in terms of doing business using multi, um, you know, video, phone and so on, comfortable doing that? Or uh, are there any other protocols that we need to be aware of? I would say... At the moment, if you want to do business in China and you've never been in China in any way, shape or form before, then you need to, at the moment, you probably need to have somebody at your side who can, on the one hand, translate the market for you a little bit and explain what's going on and who can explain what's being said between the lines in any meetings. But also you need to have, at the moment, more than usual I would say you need to have somebody who has a network that you can leverage because almost everybody at the moment is leveraging those networks that they built pre-pandemic in person because it is extremely hard. If you don't have a warm introduction to somebody, it is extremely hard to build a new business relationship right now um, Mm. in China itself. Okay. 
Catherine, this has been really very, very instructive. Thank you. If there was anything that you could recommend uh, for people to read, maybe about the history of China, what would you suggest? I'm trying to think what the title are. There, there's a couple of, if you search on Amazon, there are really a couple of, like you suggested from Gautama, this is as a course, this is this is quite one good resource. There are a couple of good penguin histories of China, I think, which literally tell you the facts. If you're looking about learning as to how China is now, then chances are that you're almost better looking at online resources rather than rather than books. There are some some really good resources that are unfortunately only available in German, especially for business cases and those kind of things. So if there's anybody who speaks German, then please reach out and I'll give you a couple of recommendations on those. One is called China's Bosses, and it's talking about the heads of all of these companies like Tencent, Alibaba, and so on. But I think at the moment, it's not available in English. Okay, and you could always run it through Google Translate, so you might do the blue parrot sketch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thank you. Okay, so you've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Catherine, age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give her? learn Chinese and go to China much earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm stunned that we haven't moved our education system to teach Mandarin uh, as a matter of routine. I mean, what the hell are we doing? I, I'm all in favour of uh, teaching French and German and Italian and Spanish, but we've got to be teaching Mandarin as a basic. And because, believe me, it's painful to try to put it into your brain as an adult. <laughs> I spent five months commuting to London at between 5 and 6.30 in the morning, listening to my Chinese. And honestly, the only thing I learned was how to order a beer. It was just a nightmare. I couldn't hear the difference between the phonemes or whatever they are. And it's just very difficult when you're old. (laughs) I I suspect being thrown in at the deep end and having to work it out, uh, starving on the street would help. (laughs) But being able to order a beer is always a good start. I mean, beer or Mao Tai is always a good start. Right. (laughs) Excellent. So how can people get hold of you? You can get in touch with me via my website, best of all, which is katherineread.com. That is the easiest source. I'm assuming you can put that somewhere in some show notes so that people spell Catherine and read correctly. And otherwise, I'm open to connect on LinkedIn. Excellent. And your LinkedIn uh, URL will be in the show notes as well. Brilliant. Catherine Reed, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share and subscribe. Now, if you are a business leader and you're looking to scale up fast, and you've got some big stretch targets. Maybe you're feeling understaffed, you're overstretched, and you're trying to make the impossible possible. Then drop me a line. I've got some very good ideas that are proven to work. I've worked with hundreds of companies around the world. So if you're interested, then drop me a line, marcus at laughs In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye. <laughs>